Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. My name is Chris Rawl. Football is so close. I can almost taste it. We are inside of two weeks before Nebraska and Northwestern, two, three, and nine Big Ten West teams from a year ago, play a football game, an American football game in Ireland, a country that is out in Europe. And it's going to be insane. And it's going to be so representative of college football. And it's going to be real, actual football with stakes that we can gamble on. It's going to involve my Cornhuskers. It's going to be fantastic. A week later, we're going to have college football, the entire slate opening up. The week after, we're having the NFL back. I mean, there's never a better time to be alive than when we get into September and we have football back at our disposal and we can go and play golf in our own lives. It's the best time of the year. To celebrate that, I would encourage you to go and sign up for my newsletter. It's at chrisrawl.com. It's very easy to sign up for. It comes out every Wednesday. Just go to chrisrawl.com and click on the subscribe button. Last week, I wrote about ayahuasca and the NFL and how everybody should be doing that. And maybe you could have nice hallucinations about your team winning the Super Bowl or maybe people talking about Aaron Rodgers in ways that you would like. I don't know. That's kind of stuff that's going on in the newsletter. So again, go and sign up for that. Let's get on to today's show where I talk about being who you want to be. I have a deep abiding respect for people who are unafraid to be who and what they want to be. This is a very uncommon thing. I want you to think about that and think about yourself and the people that you know in your life and think about how many you could truly say that person is who they want to be. They're going out of their way at every single moment of every single day to do the things that they want to do, to stand up and just go, yeah, no, this decision is made for me and it is part of my identity and I'm making it on behalf of me and it's not hurting other people, but this is who I am and this is who I want. And sometimes people may disagree with that, but I'm very content within my own skin. I can speak to my own experience and it's very uncommon. Uh, There are very few people who I would say qualify exactly as that. Now that's the thing that I strive for the absolute most in life. It is something I have in mind with every decision that I make. Uh, This is the philosophy that It's the sun around which my life revolves. Who do I want to be and what do I want to do with my time? I've talked about that a lot in the show because it is the area of passion in my life. And it has been for a long, long period of time. And I presume it will be the passion of my life until I am dead. It's just something that I care about a lot. You know, I have one life. This is it. So who do I want to be and what do I want to do with it? You know? Pretty simple questions when you lay them out like that, but really complex in how you try and find the answers to those. And honestly, answers sometimes don't exist. It's just a continual journey of going, maybe this is what I want to be this day. And next week it's different and just go with the flow and keep trying and finding out my path. So I want to talk about one person specifically before we get into sports that I think really kind of embodies this. And it's really why I'm drawn to him. You know, Bob Dylan is my favorite musician and there's a lot of reasons why he is. I think he is a genius songwriter. Uh, just a true master uh, at writing lyrics and putting words that I've never seen together before out. And then I hear them and and go, oh, that's uh, really unlocked a chamber of my mind that I didn't necessarily know exists. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. That's kind of how I interact with his music. Still, even in present day, I can listen to a song that I've listened to 150 times and there'll be little snippets of, of lyric that for whatever reason, will just stand out and resonate that day. And I'll be like, holy shit, I can't believe that somehow I found something new from this guy's songs. But that's kind of my relationship with his music, Uh, just all of these albums and songs that he's crafted. So one of the reasons why 
I'm way into them, but above all else, probably the one thing that draws me to him and continues to draw me to him is his willingness to be who he wants, despite the general public always wanting something different. That's the thing that I really have thought a lot about over the years as I got into Dylan's music way back in high school. And it really started solidifying my mind as something that was more meaningful to me than just music. It was kind of uh, something that went deeper, you know, and it started kind of with his voice, strangely enough, because his voice is atrocious. That's something that I love. It is not a traditional singing voice. You all know this because you've listened to Bob Dylan. But I think that's such a clear indicator out of the gate of somebody who was passionate about music. He's out in Greenwich Village and he's playing Buddy Guthrie folk songs and he's trying to make it. And I'm sure every single person who ever came across him was like, you need to do something with that voice. It's not good. It's not radio friendly. It is not like anybody else's voice. It is not necessarily pleasing to the ear. And for whatever reason, he's just like, no, nah, this is this is my thing. This is what I'm going to roll with. And to his credit, you know, he carved out a good niche at that time as he's doing early stuff. And then he releases a self-titled album. This is back in the early 60s. And then he releases a couple more albums, including the Free Will and Bob Dylan, like one of his great early albums. And he becomes this kind of iconic folk singer and this really iconic protest anthem writer. That's what he was synonymous with at the time. You know, uh, we're talking Blown in the Wind, one of, if not the most iconic protest anthems of all time. The times they are changing, those are two that stand kind of above the rest that I think are representative of the early 60s and just that period of tumult and upheaval within United States culture. So he's kind of becoming the face of this movement, if you want to call it that at the time. And Bob Dylan was like, I, no, I don't. I actually am. I don't want to be that. And he would say that many times. And he kind of by the time the mid 60s hit, he's like going out of his way to almost alienate the people who like him at the time by just being like, no, 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 no. not only am I not that, but I'm going to start making electric music. You know, I'm going to play rock and roll. And, and it starts with his album in, he wrote three albums from 1965 to 1966 that are all iconic. The first one was Bringing It All Back Home and then Highway 61 Revisited and Blonde on Blonde. It's probably his most iconic three album stretch in his very storied career that spans 50 some odd albums. So he writes Bringing It All Back Home and the first half of that album is electric and everybody was pissed about it. And then the second half is acoustic and it ends with a song called It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, which really awesome, just perfect Bob Dylan song that is abstract and you think it's about something and then you think it's about nothing and then you think it's about everything. And as the years wore on and we realized this was kind of just him transitioning into something else where he's like, no, I'm, I'm going to be what I want to be. I'm going to do what I want to do. You know what I want to do? Play rock and roll. I'm going to take some drugs and I'm going to write these weird ass lyrics and I'm going to pen these iconic rock and roll songs, including Like a Rolling Stone in Highway 61 Revisited. And it's going to blow people's minds and it's going to transform music as we know it. That was him in the mid 60s. And funny enough, while he was doing that, a lot of his fans were pissed and were like, OK, well, we don't like this. We want to part ways, you know. He's going and recording these concerts, the most notables when he's playing at Royal Albert Hall in, in London and somebody screams out from the crowd, Judas, and he's just like, all right, you know, right before he's getting ready to play like a Rolling Stone. It's one of the most iconic moments in Bob Dylan's storied career. It's just a really crystal clear image of somebody who wasn't afraid to be who he wanted, which, again, I find to be very admirable, even if. A person is doing that and it's something I disagree with and go, oh, I don't think this is good for your career or I don't necessarily like the content or thing that you're doing. 
relative to what I used to like about you, I will always point that out and go, mm, this is something that's worthy of celebration. And Dylan's done that throughout his whole career. You know, whenever people want him to do this, he does that. Zigzag, zigzag. He's got a country phase. You know, he's writing Nashville Skyline. He's recording songs with Johnny Cash. He's got the strange alienation phase where he just didn't like anybody. And he released an album called Self-Portrait, which is complete dog shit. So bad. And he did it on purpose because he's just like, it's a middle finger to everybody who wanted him to do this or do that. And he comes back and he's got his resurgence phase where he writes, for my money, his greatest album ever, Blood on the Tracks. This is in the mid 70s. He has a gospel phase where he just randomly gets into gospel music and pens these weird gospel songs that none of his fans liked, including me. But I still point to and go, that's part of the Dylan journey and experience. And it's part of what makes him who he is. It's part of what I admire so much about him as a musician and as a person that's that's worthy of diving into their work and trying to find things that apply to my own life. So he's a musical genius in every sense of the word because of his talent. And I also believe in large part because he followed the paths his heart desired. There's an alternate reality where he's just the greatest folk singer, anthem writer, and he spanned the 60s and we never really heard from him again, like pretty much everybody from that era. There are very few bands or individual artists who span more than that stretch because it was rooted in that specific point in time, this culture of upheaval. And then we went to the 70s and we're just like, oh, let's play rock. And then we wanted, went to the 80s and we're like, let's just, you know, have wear weird jeans and play even weirder rock. And then we got to the 90s and we're like, let's just mend these jeans even stranger and play grunge. And you, you get the point. Dylan's one of the only people who spans everything. There's a great lesson in there, you know, if you're willing to look for it and think about it, because I think it is truly tied into somebody who was unafraid to be what they want to be. The other iconic band from that stretch is the Beatles, who have talked about just watching Dylan's transformation and taking that to heart and crediting him with kind of their own personal transformation within their music, which I like all the Beatles stuff. I think it's great. But there's a clear delineation between their early stuff, which was, you know, your sweet love songs with nice harmonies and they sounded good and they're poppy in their two minutes and you snap them out and you go on to the last half of their career when you got real musical depth and you saw the Beatles become the Beatles kind of going from I want to hold your hand to a song like A Day in the Life. These really complex musical journeys that, again, much like Dylan, I would listen to and go, hmm, there's something deeper here than just a simple song. You know, I think depth comes from that journey, from staying true to who you are and who you want to be. I firmly believe this. This is something I will talk about for all of time. And it is something that I always try to, it's a standard that I always try to hold myself to. So that's a very long-winded introduction into talking about the upcoming football season. But I think it's important to set the tone because this is something that's always on my mind going into the season and throughout the season, and especially as seasons thread together. So I'm going to talk about my two favorite teams, Nebraska in college and Green Bay in the NFL. But I also want you to think of this in terms of your own team or your own player and this particular journey of what does this team want to be? How are they going about doing it? Do they have a clear identity? And is it the same from 2020 to 2022? Is it going to be the same in 2024? And how do these things tie together? How do they paint either a reasonable picture about why this team is doing well and what can be learned from that? Or does it explain why this team has really, really, really struggled 
and what can they go and do to try and rectify that. So I want to start in the college game because I mentioned at the top of the show, Nebraska is playing Northwestern on August 27th. I cannot wait. I cannot stress this enough. I cannot wait. It's the weirdest thing in the history of the world to be giddy for. Nebraska and Northwestern are two dog shit teams. They are so bad. They were the most broke down football teams. And yet that game is going to be so fun and so enjoyable. And this is the time of the year when, despite my best wishes, there's always a thread of optimism that kind of washes into my soul. It's, it's part of being a fan. It's really hard to explain unless you are an in-depth fan. Those of you who are listening that are, you know. There's just something that flickers in the summer months, especially the closer you get to the season and you stare at the schedule and you stare at the returning starters and you stare at returning production and you go, and we changed this coach out and we did this. And actually, maybe we could upset that team. And you know what? Maybe there is a pathway where we could win seven games or eight games or nine games, which for Nebraska would be like winning the national championship. So I'm at that point right now. I go, okay, Nebraska was the best 3-9 team in the history of football last year. They really were. That's actually true. They were the best 3-9 team. They were a great team to gamble on. They were awesome against the spread. They were atrocious in real life because they could not do the tiny things that they needed to do in order to win football games. If they learned how to do those last year, they could have been a 9-3 and team in the snap of a fingers. This is emblematic of a thing that Nebraska has struggled with for 20 years, including the entire duration of the Scott Frost era. It's a struggle to find what you want to be. They have been a team that is rudderless. They have had no identity. Since Frank Solch was fired in 2003, they've gone through a bunch of different coaches. There was a glimmer under Pliny where I thought this identity was being solidified. We we're defense first. We had the best defense in the nation in 2009 and Dominic Sue just throwing people out of the gym and it never really crystallized into the best version of that. The offense was always kind of rudderless. They'd always say things like multiple. That was the key word, multiple, multiple. We want to be multiple. And you'd watch them play, and i go, what does multiple mean? I don't know what this means. There's nothing this offense can do. They do this kind of poorly, and this kind of poorly, and this kind of poorly. And in my mind, multiple means you are diverse, and you can do multiple things well. That never came to fruition. Mike Riley era was even more rudderless. The Scott Frost era has been a, a stark and kind of morbid confrontation with reality because I couldn't have been higher with him coming in. It made, made a lot of sense from an identity perspective. Frosty's bringing his whole staff from UCF. UCF just took the college football world by storm. They're undefeated. They beat Auburn in the Peach Bowl. Incredible accomplishment. And UCF and the Big Ten sounded so cool. High-flying offense, pace, pace, pace. Playmakers on the outside, get the ball in their hands, just burn this, especially the Big Ten West, this big plotting physical division. Let's just burn them down with speed. It made so much sense until it didn't because as soon as Nebraska got there and Frost had spoken about this, there was a big reality check of, okay, we're going to have to amend a lot of the ways that we play to kind of fit this division in this conference. UCF in the Big Ten sounds great until you realize it's one thing to play a good team or a good physical team once every season. It's another thing to play that every week and go up against Minnesota and then Iowa and then Wisconsin and then Michigan and then Michigan State and then Ohio State and then Penn State. That's a really different world because you get your ass kicked physically. 
And that takes a toll really fast. And Nebraska has seen that happen. And so suddenly a team that seemed like they were going to have identity, who knew exactly who they wanted to be, the coaching staff knew exactly what they wanted to implement and how they wanted to do it. Suddenly their heads are spinning. They're going, wait, we need to change this. And now you've seen coaching changes and roster going or roster talent going in and out the door over and over and over. Just these recruiting classes that are, they look promising. And then you look a year later and half of them are gone. I think there was a, I can't remember who did it at the athletic, but they were, they do a four year revisitation of recruiting rankings and just, okay, let's actually talk about these now that we know them rather than the way that we currently do it, which is, oh, great. Nebraska signed the 18th rated class in 2022. And this is sweet. And we really don't know what that means until four years down the road. And out of all five power five teams, out of all power five teams over the last four year stretch, Nebraska was dead last because there was just such a churn of people who would leave, 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 leave. And the people who stayed never really turned into anything. That is incredible for Nebraska to be ranked dead last amongst all power five teams in the recruiting department based upon reality. Now, even amidst that, going into 2022, I spoke about the optimism part of my heart and I, uh, I'm listening to a podcast this morning and they're talking up Nebraska. They're going, okay, big time, positive regression candidate, best three, nine team ever win total set at seven and a half in Vegas. You can tell that Vegas expects a rebound. The schedule this year, much better than last year. They're missing Ohio state. They're missing Penn state. They're missing, missing Michigan state. I mean, there's, there's a really easy to understand path where this team can turn into something significantly better than what they've been starting this year. They've made great strides on defense. That's been very evident, including last year, really good, really good defense. That was the backbone of the team. Offense, state of flux. Again, Scott Frost, off play calling duties. They bring in Mark Whipple, who is a great offensive coordinator. Last year, he was there at Pitt, leading that complete turnaround with Kenny Pickett and Jordan Addison. I like that he is there. I think it's kind of a weird... Scott Frost knows his job is on the line this year, and he also has turned all of his former duties to a guy who's just like, okay, yeah, sweet. This is what I want, and this is what I need, and you can basically be the CEO of the team and just chill out. And I think that's putting Frost in a very strange spot where he's trying to morph into something he has not been in the past, and I think he has to in order to make this team the best version of itself. Special teams overhaul. That has to happen. I mean, just has to. First, team, first time since 2016, Nebraska hires a special teams coach. I mean, last year, we're talking one of the worst special teams units in the history of college football. It was, it was a train wreck. It was atrocious. So those things are all happening that, that point to, okay, okay, there's optimism. But this is still a team that's far away from truly understand who we are presently and who we want to be, most importantly. Looking at down the road, that's the job of the coaching staff. That's the job of Trev Alberts, the athletic director. You know, it starts in 2022 by going, okay, do we have enough? All these things I mentioned, is it enough to find a real actual identity this year? If so, that is a hell of a step in the right direction for the number one thing Chris Rawl aspires for. Go and find what you want to be and do and do it. That's on Nebraska's plate. That's been on their plate for 20 years. So now we transition to the pro game because I think Green Bay, Green Bay is a really interesting examination of this particular concept because the answer to the question of who are you for going on what 14 ish years now it's just been Aaron Rodgers it's been Aaron Rodgers and that's a great that's a great identity to have 
I'm not complaining about that in any way, shape or form. You know, this is my favorite athlete in the sport of football. But the curse and the blessing of having an A-list quarterback is that you can fall into the pattern that Green Bay has fallen into many years. We want you to cover up any and every flaw because we know you are so gifted and so talented that we can cut corners over here and cut corners over there and make mistakes here and make mistakes there. And we trust that you can throw for 350 yards and four touchdowns and no picks and save our asses time and time again. And because Aaron Rodgers is an A-list quarterback, he has done that many times in the last decade plus. It can take you a long way when you have somebody this gifted and this talented, but it cannot take you all the way. The number one drum, I'm always pounding, 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 pounding. You need help. You need help. Football is a team game. You need help. So Green Bay plays the Niners in their first preseason game. This was on last Friday. And I'm watching because I'm star for football. I want to watch Jordan Love play. I want to watch Romeo Dubs play. There's just little things that football nerds kind of like from the preseason. And it's also, it really made me reflective of the front office and coaching kind of union that Green Bay has. Brian Gutekunst, the general manager, Matt LaFleur, coach. And the combination of those two kind of deciding who Green Bay wants to be in 2022. And a trajectory that I, I kind of like, which might not fly with popular opinion right now about Green Bay. Um, if you were just watching the preseason game, you saw Jordan Love biff all over himself. He throws three picks. He's just, he, I don't know. I don't know what to say anymore. He doesn't look like he's ready. He doesn't look like there's things happening that point to optimism for a year or two down the road. I'm not really sure what to do with that information at this point. And if you want, you can just always look at that. And that's the thing that you attach to Brian Gutekunst. You go, Jordan Love, draft gaff. He traded up in the first round, drafted this raw quarterback prospect when he already had one of the best quarterbacks ever who went on to win two MVPs after wasting a first round draft pick on Jordan Love. If you want to look at it in that way, you can. And there are valid critiques that are tied into that draft pick. I've voiced them on this show. However, if you look past that, and that was the talk coming out of the Friday preseason game, just Jordan Love, what in the hell is this? This is garbage. If you can look past that and think bigger picture, I am really intrigued by what Gutekunst is trying to pull off. Because he is one of the people who has to answer the question of who Green Bay is. He's the person who's in charge of constructing this roster. And we've seen, we are seeing, actually. We have not fully seen it manifested, but we are seeing a true, it's a gamble on his own job that is tied into a change in identity. Uh, a team that has always been, who are we? Aaron Rodgers. Do everything, do everything, do everything. He's taking a, a calculated risk that I wish Green Bay had been doing many, many, many years ago, early on in Aaron Rodgers' career. Just, all right, football is a team game. Let's maybe flush out our defense. Let's maybe do some things on special teams. Try and really, really, really sharpen ourselves in that third facet of the game that nobody cares about until you biff on yourself time and again, and then everybody cares about. Let's sharpen those two areas down, and let's trust that Rodgers is good enough on offense to, at the very least, always keep things moving and stay afloat. And at his best, even with inferior talent, especially the receiver position, we've still seen Rodgers pull rabbits out of the hat time and again in past years when either people were injured or Green Bay was a talent deficit because of who they had drafted. So I, I was reading, this was over the weekend as well. This was after I watched Green Bay against the Niners. And there was an awesome, 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 awesome article in The Athletic. It was by Mike Sando. 
And he wrote about, he, he calls it the quarterback betrayal index. And he went through 54 quarterbacks. This is from the last decade plus. So you had to have a minimum amount of starts. And he went through 54 quarterbacks that had all played meaningful or all started meaningful NFL games more than a handful of times to kind of try and examine something that I care deeply about, which is like, ah, so what happens? What kind of help have quarterbacks been given outside of the things they control, essentially? Just especially on the defensive and special teams side, what kind of help have these quarterbacks been given over the course of the last decade plus? It's a great, great, great concept and one that you know is catnip for me because I'm the guy who's always going quarterbacks can control a little bit of the game. There's a hell of a lot they cannot. So I want to read some stuff and I want to go over some stats. And this is all taken from Mike Sando. It's again, just it's catnip for me. And I think it is really illustrative of why I am intrigued that Green Bay has traded their best weapon on offensive wide receiver and is going into currently in this year with a wide receiver room that is probably the second worst in the league behind the Texans. And even with that, I'm optimistic because I like the grander vision that Green Bay has. We need a team and we trust Rodgers can do things to help mitigate some of the stuff offensively. And we've never given him help in the past with defense and with special teams, as we're going to find out here from Mike Sand. So I'm going to start with a few paragraphs, then I'm going to go into some stats. Here we go. Pair a great quarterback with consistently strong defense and special teams, and that team will win Super Bowls, plural. Tom Brady is living proof of it. Pair a great quarterback with inconsistent or mostly poor defense and special teams, and that team might win a Super Bowl. But some will question the quarterback's ability to get his team over the top consistently. Aaron Rodgers and Drew Brees are examples. It's too early to know whether Patrick Mahomes will join them. Justin Herbert should be watching closely. Breeze and Herbert share more than the playbook Breeze former position coach Joe Lombardi brought to Herbert's Los Angeles Chargers upon becoming their offensive coordinator last season. The two quarterbacks also know what it's like to perform at elite levels and still struggle to reach 500 for reasons outside their direct control. Breeze won 45% of his starts from 2014 to 2016, despite ranking 4th, 5th, and 7th in ESPN's total QBR, respectively. His Saints offense ranked first in expected points added, EPA, over that run, according to True Media. Herbert won 47% of his starts over the past two seasons, despite ranking 13th and 3rd in QBR for an offense that ranked 6th in EPA over that span. The culprit? Terrible defense and or special teams. Breeze Saints ranked 32nd in combined EPA on defense and special teams from 2014 to 2016. Herbert's Chargers rank 30th over the past two seasons, end quote. So you see a very clear picture being painted via the numbers and via really good examples. A couple who I have actually talked about on the show when I've talked about the careers of Rodgers and Breeze. It's pretty incredible to think about that Saints stretch, 2014 to 2016, because I remember they were just throwing the ball everywhere. They were dynamite. Get them indoors on that turf and Breeze is throwing it all over the yard and Sean Payton scheming up. 30 points a game, and they were sub-500. Despite the fact that they were first in EPA on offense. Uh, it, it speaks to that really uh, kind of forgotten thing. Football is a team game. Football is a team game. Football is a team game. Football is a team game, right? So Sando goes through all these quarterbacks. He has a blurb for every single one of them. So I'm scanning because I want to see, first I'm going for Rodgers because this is my crusade in life, just 
how he has been betrayed by his surroundings over and over. And sure enough, he's right there, right at the top of the list. Over that time frame, you know, Rodgers, he's started 100 and almost 60 games. And his offense, it's been top five the entire time. Majority of that is Rodgers just saying, okay, I'm, I'm Aaron Rodgers. And during that same time frame, again, this is out of 54 possible people. The combination of his defense and special teams was 43rd. Just a, a nice little 38 spot gap between what he was doing offensively and what his defense and special teams were giving him. Uh, this is a sandal blurb. The last time the Packers ranked among the top 10 in combined defense and special teams EPA, they won the Super Bowl. <laughs> the last time they ranked amongst the top 10. That was after the 2010 season when they were third. The team has averaged a number 20 ranking since 2012. It's just, it's, it's so frustrating for me, a person who talks about it and just, I can't even fathom the way that the career of Aaron Rodgers is talked about. I've recorded a hundred shows. I will record 600 more. I talk about it with everybody I come across, especially every time there's a loss and I hear anybody go like, oh yeah, it's just, that's what Rodgers does. Rodgers, you know, he, he can't really pull through in the big one. Everything that was said after the Niners playoff game last year. And I'm going, what in the hell are we talking about? What are we watching? So I pulled some more blurbs from other quarterbacks because I think this is just a fascinating subject and one worthy of exploration on every show until this show is no more. So I pull some Mahomes stuff. Again, this is from Mike Sando. It's a phenomenal article. If you guys have The Athletic, you should go and read it because it's just, it's a perfect example of everything I talk about on this show, but backed with numbers, 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 numbers. So here's a couple things about Mahomes. And he has not been given the greatest help on defense and special teams, but he has in short spurts. Here are two sentences I want to read. The Chiefs have ranked 18th or better on defense and special teams twice in four seasons with Mahomes as their starter. Those were the two seasons Kansas City reached the Super Bowl. Pretty easy to draw a line because we know Mahomes and that offense is dynamite. And we know even if you give them a middling combination of those two things, you're going to go to the Super Bowl. And if you give him enough playmakers on the defensive side of the ball, as they had with especially Chris Jones that year and, and Tyron Matthew, who can make a turnover game, make a sack here, make a sack there, you're going to win the Super Bowl. Now, What's even more interesting is a stat that Sando drops about when the Chiefs finish games with a positive combined expected points added on defense and special teams. Essentially just individual games where, hey, your defense and special teams played good. They added points to what was happening. So what did you do offensively and how did that combination work? Well, there were 29 instances where that happened during the career of Patrick Mahomes. The record during that time, 29 and 0. Pretty easy to understand football's a team game. And when you have a hell of a quarterback and a hell of an offense and a hell of an offensive mind as Kansas City is stocked on that side of the ball in every way, shape and form, even after the Tyree kill trade. If you give an offense like that any amount of help, well, there's a world where you can go 29 and 0 in all of the games where your defense and special teams play respectable. So what about Tom Brady? You're going, you know, Chris hasn't mentioned Tom Brady and his number one thing along with Rodgers is to always bring Tom Brady into things because I have to. And I do. I have to. Because it's the other thing that drives me to insanity. It really is. Brady just wins because he's a winner. And there's nothing else to that besides it. It's just he snaps his fingers and the game is won. And he does it over and over and he's won all these Super Bowls. And that's a big differentiator between him and Rodgers. Um, Brady's top five rankings on both offense and defense and special teams over the past decade separate him from Rodgers, Breeze, and the other great quarterbacks. Yeah, that matches up. <laughs> that matches up. 
It's the thing I cry from the rooftops again and again and again until everybody goes to sleep and shutters their windows and says, go home and you're drunk and get out of here. But it's just, it's so easy to understand. And yet most talking heads and the way that the sport is covered do not talk in this manner. So hat tip to Mike Sandow. I really like this. Another quarterback I'd like to mention, Russell Wilson, who I do think is really good, who I also think was put in the very best position um, because his early career was nowhere near the last five years that we've seen of Russell Wilson. It was game manager, man. It just was. And he'd make one play a game and he'd hand the ball off to Marshawn Lynch. And that combination was enough to win a Super Bowl and make another one. Why? Well, Seattle finished 36% of Russell Wilson's starts. Positive combined EPA on defense and special teams. Only Trubisky and Lamar Jackson had it any better by that measure over the past decade. Talking over a third of games that he started, he was getting that help, getting that help, getting that help. That's really going to contribute to your win-loss record and also to perception of you as a quarterback. Because the early stuff with Russell Wilson was, this guy's just a winner. And I would look at the stat sheet and go, that's, I mean, there is talent there. Don't get me wrong, but he's throwing for 150 yards a game. And he's attempting 18 passes. And he's throwing four picks against the Green Bay Packers in the 2014 NFC Championship and advancing to the Super Bowl. I mean, what are we talking about here? The last quarterback I want to mention before I get back into Green Bay and wrap up the show. I'm down to the bottom of the list. This is number 53. (laughs) Mitchell Trubisky. And I was stunned, even as a person who follows this sport closely, I was stunned to see Mitchell Trubisky's win-loss record. He has started 52 games in his career. He is a above 500 quarterback. He's 29 and 23. I was stunned by that. I was truly stunned. And then I thought about it and I go, well, yeah, that actually, I kind of remember, you know, I remember they went 12 and four in 2018. Um, and Trubisky was actually kind of reasonable that year. But more importantly, I just remember Chicago always bringing it on the defensive side of the ball and giving special teams. And sure enough, during that time frame, number three ranked combination of defense and special teams. They were top 10 in defense and special teams every season that Trubisky started, which over that time frame. Trubisky's leading the 40th ranked offense out of these 54 quarterbacks. He's 29 and 23. We talk about Trubisky drastically different because it's just so apparent when you watch him that like, oh, there's really glaring flaws and this guy's not very good. At the same time, he is a winning quarterback if you want to qualify in strictly win-loss terms, as so many people like to do again and again and again. At that point, I would say, okay, well, The next time I get in an argument, I'm going to start talking about Mitchell Trubisky as a winner because he is a proven above 500 quarterback in the NFL. And then if you want to talk more nuance, I'll go, well, that is all defense and special teams. And in actuality, I don't think he's very good. It's interesting for Pittsburgh this year, a team that traditionally has really good defense and can contribute on special teams and just don't screw up. And maybe we can hack out another winning record. And maybe if the ball bounces right and you channel a little bit more, there's a 12 and four season waiting there, 13 and four now that we have 17 games. Kind of interesting to think about, right? So now we circle back to the theme of the show and my own team. The Packers, this search for who you want to be and a shift from what I think it has always been into what it might be in 2022, which Aaron Rodgers will always be a part of that. He's always going to be the beating heart of the team, but there's a chance that this team is going, okay, we're ready to lean into defense and special teams a little bit more. If Rodgers guarantees you a competitive baseline on offense, 
regardless of who's around him? Should you supplement that with defense and special teams? Is that a, a risk worth taking? Ryan Gutekunst is saying yes. Again, it's a gamble on his job. I tip my hat on his behalf because it might fail spectacularly and I'll be way pissed about it. But I also understand somebody who's like, no, 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 no. I have a vision and I think this is who we should be and we're going to go after it. I always have to tip my cap to that particular way of conducting your business, right? So I am optimistic about Green Bay's potential on defense this year. I think the starting defensive unit has a lot of pieces that intrigue me. I think Rashawn Gary is going to be even better. I think that secondary could be amongst the very best in the league. They have people you can move left and right that I think are really intriguing as far as coverage, whether that's Jair Alexander or Rasul Douglas or Eric Stokes. Safeties are always going to be intriguing with Amos and Savage. There's just a lot of pieces that I'm intrigued by. Special teams, even more so. This team was the worst special teams in the league a year ago. Somehow I root for the two teams in two separate sports that had the worst special teams and they reared their head and they lost the San Francisco 49ers playoff game. Um, they brought in Rich Bisaccia, who was the interim coach for the Raiders, noted special teams coach throughout his career in the NFL. He's here to remake the special teams disaster of a year ago. Matt LaFleur has promised just, hey, we are not paying lip service to this. Much like Nebraska is doing, they're like, we have to change this. Green Bay even more so because Green Bay has continually been around the top of the league. And a lot of the separating parts of the playoffs is they get there and other teams have good quarterbacks. And you know what else they have? Good defenses and good special teams. And that's been a separator for many, many, many moons in the career of Aaron Rodgers and the last decade plus of Green Bay Packer football. Strangely enough, it kind of, it actually reminds me of what the Seahawks were doing during the first half of Russell Wilson's career, except that Rodgers is infinitely better and I don't think will just be a simple game manager because that play action system, Rodgers is just going to do stuff. He can't but help it. He's too good. You give him two good tailbacks, you get that offensive line healthy. Hopefully, Elton Jenkins and David Bakhtiari can get back. And if you got everybody on that line, that's a really intriguing combination. And then Rodgers, you're going to have to make chicken salad out of chicken shit, maybe with the receiving core. So be it. If the defense and special teams can live up to expectations, that's a different version of Green Bay and maybe one that's more equipped to win. Maybe not. But I do like this, this charge to be who you want to be, right? I'll give Gutekunst his props again. He's, he's made peace with Rodgers, and now he's been trying to craft Green Bay into what he thinks is the most competitive version of itself in a hard salary cap leak. You know, remember, you always have to choose where you're going to dedicate resources. Um, you can get a team like, like uh, Pete Manning's Colts, and they just, they pretty much threw everything into offense. They couldn't ever find that balance. You know, they're drafting... First rounder after first rounder, just offense, offense, offense. Let's give Manny more weapons. You know, Edron James, Reggie Wayne, Dallas Clark, Joseph Adai, Anthony Gonzalez, Donald Brown, Anthony Costanza. And then ultimately his replacement, Andrew Luck. But like, those are all first round choices thrown on the offensive side of the ball during that stretch where, yes, they won a Super Bowl. That's awesome. Two thumbs up. They made another Super Bowl. Awesome. Two thumbs up. That's really hard to do. A lot of people look at Peyton Manning's career and go, ah, that was disappointing. He also was not playing on a well-balanced team. <laughs> you got to choose where you're dedicating your resources. And you have to have really shrewd people in charge of that. And even then, sometimes it's not enough. The flip side would be the Seahawks with Wilson. Defense first, win a Super Bowl, playing another, two thumbs up. That's really good. You know, Cliff Haverhill, Michael Bennett, Bobby Wagner, the whole Legion of Boom, Richard Sherman and Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor, just all these incredible players on the defensive side of the ball. And the offense was Wilson, 
Great one play a game, run around and throw something downfield, and the rest of the game just give 30 carries to Marshawn Lynch. We can win like that. And they did. They also were not super well balanced. And we saw a brief period where they were the team in football, and then suddenly they were not. Who's the only person to find the perfect equilibrium? Tom Brady. <laughs> Uh, and there are a lot of factors that go into that that have nothing to do with him. You know, it's a man who has, in his defense, who has piloted really good to great offenses throughout his career. Much like a lot of these quarterbacks I have said. And then the separator becomes, but also he's been backed by a top five defense and special teams. He's had the best coach of all time for nearly two decades at his disposal. And he has used that to pile up more Super Bowl trophies than anyone ever. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawls Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter. It comes out tomorrow. It comes out every Wednesday morning. You can go to chrisrawls.com and subscribe. Put your email address in there. I promise I will only use it for good in the world. If you have not read any of my past ones, they are also all available on that site, chrisrawls.com, as well as past essays that I have written. Thank you for listening today. I will talk to you on Friday. <laughs>